We are keeping democracy alive. For pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. So yes, there's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. That people don't feel that they can do very much. You know what this is? This is a very Hamiltonian system. Alexander Hamilton being the guy here in a very un-Jeffersonian. In the case of the Republicans, it's dramatically the opposite. Uh, But even in the case of the Democrats. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans in the South. America's fascists are those people who think that Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've seen is a financial sector that's uh, gotten out of hand. The shooting, the violence, that is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Machines are smarter than we humans, in many definitions of smart anyway. They're better workers. Today, we find ourselves at the cutting edge of a smart machine age led by what we have so far called artificial intelligence. It will be as transformative for us as the Industrial Revolution was for our predecessors. Millions of jobs in manufacturing, office work, service, many professions will be eliminated entirely. These new machines can know more data and analyze it faster and more efficiently than any human. Artificial intelligence is not bogged down by any emotional, psychological, or cultural baggage we all carry. Our guest today, Edward Hess, and his co-author Catherine Ludwig argue in their new book that since we will not be able to compete in this playing field to stay relevant and successfully go with the flow, we humans have to play a different game. We will need to excel at critical, creative, and innovative thinking and at actual human relations, areas in which machines cannot compete with us. Hess argues we will need to update and change the definition of what it means to be smart. Edward Hess is a professor of business administration and Batten executive in residence at the University of Virginia Darden School of Business. His professional experience includes 20 years as a business executive and 15 years in academia. His research and 12 books have a common theme, how organizations and individuals can be consistent high performers. His work has been featured in over 350 global media outlets. And their new book is called Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in that Smart Machine Age. Hess offers guidance as to how to develop new smart attitudes and specifies four critical behaviors to help us adapt to the new world arising. One reviewer calls this book about new thinking the kind of generous, curious thinking that will allow us to thrive in a world in which machines do so many things better than we ever will. Of course, the book's release comes at a time, the hopefully brief Trump era, in which such things as uh, generosity, curiosity, and critical thinking are regarded as superfluous wastes of time and energy. 
But that challenge adds to the book's importance, raising the question of how we might use this oncoming technological and social tsunami to start creating a more just and sustainable economy. Again, the title is Humility is the New Smart. And that stops me in my tracks right off. Humility. Obviously, it is the precise opposite of what we see in this current president who appears to exist in some fantasy world uh, in defiance of any reality. With the appearance of an underdeveloped juvenile, he seems to depend on boasting how smart he is. The very antithesis of anything like humility. You and your co-authors say that if humans are going to endure, and I hope we do, we're going to need a dose of humility. As a human with human children, I would very much like for us to endure. Humility has been preached for a long time by religious and spiritual traditions, but it seems counter to the requirements we've seen in the cutthroat, super competitive post-World War II world. You write that we're on the leading edge of a technology tsunami which will fundamentally change how most of us live and work, end of quote. With the ubiquity of smartphones throughout the entire world, I kind of thought that already happened. You say it's highly possible that work as we know it simply won't exist for most workers. That's quite frightening. Let's get started, uh, Ed, uh, by my asking you to paint a picture of how you think technological advances in the next two decades may affect the American workplace. What do you think, Ed? It turns out to be about 80 million jobs. That's more than 10 times the number of jobs that have been automated through manufacturing and through globalization. So this is huge, all right? And we're not ready for it. We're not prepared for it as a society. Um, our education system's not prepared for it. Our social safety net's not prepared for it. And the big thing that's not prepared for it is our culture. We have a culture, as you stated, of individualistic, selfish, yeah. Darwinian survival of the fittest. And in the world that we're going into, that's not going to work. It's not going to work for the people that are going to have jobs. People are going to have jobs if they can do skills that technology can't do well. That's basically higher order, critical thinking, innovative thinking, and creativity, and jobs which require high emotional intelligence and emotionally engaging with customers on personalized services. It also involves trade jobs that involve complex problem analysis and non-rote problem solving. Ah. All of those jobs, what's so clear is, is that we as human beings, cognitively and emotionally, we're suboptimal thinkers. And we're suboptimal uh, relators and collaborators. And all of those jobs, we're going to need the helps of others to overcome the way we are naturally, reflexively, cognitively biased, confirmation-seeking thinkers now, and affirmation-thinking people. Wow, that's, that's a lot to bite off. My goodness gracious. I mean, you, you look at the I don't know if, if there is such a thing as an average American worker these days. Certainly there's a, there used to be a very large field of what was called unskilled labor, you know, just factory workers. And that, obviously, you know, the, the, the machines are taking over. But to, to increase that capability for critical thinking, wow, yes, that's a lot to bite off. It's, it's a light to, lot to bite off, and what's going to happen with 
the technology that's coming, especially artificial intelligence yes. and machine learning, the Internet of Things, increased computing power, virtual reality, and in even the stuff that's even even more in some ways amazing, genetic engineering and nanotechnology, wow. biotechnology in our bodies. If you look at the jobs that, that are most likely to be automated in the next 15 years, service jobs, the retail industry, fast food, manual laborers, construction workers, long-haul truck drivers, accountants, clerks, paralegals, telemarketers, customer service reps, security guards, Hmm. And for the first time, we're going, to, we're going to have major automation in the professions, the accounting profession, legal profession, finance, consulting, management. Medicine's going to be hit some, architecture. And so this whole, this is, this is so transformative. This, is, this will be, I believe, as or more transformative for us as the Industrial Revolution was for in the United Kingdom. And, and people say, well, gee, Technology's always in the past produced more jobs than it's destroyed. And, and they believe history is going to repeat itself. Well, mm. I'm skeptical of that for two reasons. Reason number one, if you study the United Kingdom after the Industrial Revolution, it took 60 to 80 years for the United Kingdom to basically, for the human misery caused by mm. the revolution to be abated and for people to start basically increasing their wages. And the second thing that's different, this, that's, that, and so that bothers me, okay? I, I don't believe we as a country yeah. uh, will uh, have 60 to that. 80 years to adapt. Yeah. And the second thing that's different this time is, is technology is going to continue to advance. So the question is, will technology produce enough new jobs that technology itself cannot do? And most people believe when they hear that question that technology is not going to produce the number of jobs it's going to displace. And so we, we're, we're, we have a huge existential question facing us as a society. I mean, you can add that to climate change. <laughs> yeah. This is huge because income inequality is going to become exacerbated. Right. Upward social mobility even is going to become rarer. Right? Hmm. So what is the American dream? What's the land of opportunity? Um, you know, something has got, you know, we're talking about a, a massive uh, need to have a, a new American dream defined in, in a, a, a public conversation. What kind of society do we want to be in this new age? And we're having no conversation at this point in time. No, that's true. We seem to be stuck in uh, the myth. It was never even real, the myth of rugged individualism from the 19th century. It was never real back then. And and there seems to be, I mean, there's always this kind of human longing for how things used to be, like back in the good old days. Well, it was never real anyway. And yet here we are in the situation, as you describe, where we better uh, get our act together, but quick. The book is yeah. called Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. Our guest today is co-author Edward Hess. W what about lawyers and doctors? I mean, it, it, and aren't there professions in which people's creative thinking and as you mentioned architecture i have a cousin who's done quite well as an architect mm -hmm. and his his creativity is has been called for and he's really put a stamp on things there's yes. got what about those professions they what what will happen in those professions is is that you will need highly creative people to do the unique creative things and let's just say the standard bread and butter architecture the standard type uh -huh. of procedures in medicine the documentation that you have to use in 
the legal field, mm. the trial preparation and going through all the documents and the facts and even the writing of legal briefs, the standard stuff will probably be automated. It's the it's the exceptional creative stuff, and you know trial lawyers will be needed to you know so long as you have jury trials. Um, but it's the it what it means is there'll be few. They're not going to go away. There'll just be fewer positions, uh-huh. and, and and so and those very very creative people yeah. will work in concert with technology, because technology, for example. Can, can create m- many more different drafts and many more creative designs uh, than any human can faster. And then you have the human that puts the, if you will, the human touch onto it with the, with the client that they're working for. And so the human will be needed as much to, in, to interpret what the client really wants into a end product and will be using technology. Wow. Yeah, well... It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a... It's a mind-boggling world that we're talking about, Bert. It is. It is a mind-boggling world, and it's so mind-boggling, it's hard for people to to really grasp the seriousness of it. Now, I can tell you, as you well know, um, in in Europe, uh, they're having lots of conversations about this. They're having them in Canada and Australia. They're having them in China. Um, But the the thing that we, we have to face the fact that that this is coming, and this whole thing, I keep going back to the culture. Um, we, we have got to, we have really got to go back to the Mayflower Compact and the common, and the common good right. and, make, and really embrace, we're all in this together, because otherwise you, it's, it's pretty easy to see that, um, you know, history may repeat itself. I mean, you go back... Over 2,000 years in history, when you have prolonged income inequality and wealth inequality, one or two things happens. Mm-hmm. Basically, one thing happens. Yeah. You, have, you have redistribution. It either happens voluntarily or involuntarily. Yeah. And in, in, our, in our society, it, what it means is, is that businesses and business leaders are going to basically have to step up to the plate just like they did in the era of the Great Prosperity. Yes. If you look at the end of the 1940s through the end of the 1970s, that's really the only time in American capitalism history where, if you will, the, the bounty of capitalism was shared pretty equally. And, and you're aware, you know, back in that time, there were high tax rates on, on high sure. income yep. uh, people. There was a low, low household debt and income growth was shared pretty equitably along every level. And that's why it was called the era of the great prosperity. And we've got to basically go back, and business played a role in that. And it, uh, and it came after, you know, after the war. And, uh, right. But we, we've, got to, we've got to, this whole thing about what type of society do we want to be? Uh, and it's this survival of the fittest and that the purpose of society is to protect property rights property rights come above all else yeah. Um, yeah. Is, um, is going to put us in a very difficult position. Very difficult indeed. And I, I was one of those, I have to say, lucky ones to grow up in that period uh, that you describe as the period of great prosperity, 1947 to 1977. Uh, as you may have guessed, I am a baby boomers. And we had th- that, I think, that great prosperity 
gave many people, not everybody, but many people in my generation, the sense that, you know, out of this commitment to the common good, there could be some sort of a new age coming, a better age where where we can be more creative as humans. And it was a t- tremendously uh, a hopeful time. And I, there are some signs that, that you write about that, uh, that more and more businesses and academic leaders have begun to rise to the challenges of the oncoming uh, technological uh, tsunami. I see some signs that the businesses are trying to humanize the workplace, maybe little things. Good news is always welcome. Tell us more about that, please. Well, what, what I find ironic with, uh, with the, the question you ask is, is that, is, is that if, you know, technology is going to dehumanize businesses because it's going to dramatically reduce headcount. Yeah. Yeah. But for mm. those people who remain in the business working, Technology is going to require businesses to become very humanistic, people-centric, and create environments that basically enable people to do this higher-level thinking and higher-level working in teams. Individuals will no longer win. It's going to be teams collaborating uh-huh. because you need other people to help you see your cognitive biases. You help. You need other people to with different views, and so the type of corporate environment that enables that type of collaboration and what I call otherness requires an environment where people can uh, build trust with each other, and it's not uh, survival of the fittest. Right. It's what I call otherness. And in order to do that, you've got to build a, a specific type of, of culture based on psychological principles. Psychological mm. principles are going to basically... Uh, uh, rule the day in, inside the company, not economics, not strategy, not finance. And those psychological principles are the principle of positivity. Positive has got to be a positive emotional environment because positive emotions enable the highest level thinking, whether negative emotions and fear restrict thinking. Hmm. Self-determination theory, you've got to meet employees' needs for self-determination, uh, and, if, and those needs have to be met in order for them to find meaning and purpose in their work. And then the theory of psychological safety, um, my friend Amy Edmondson's great work, that people will basically rise to vacation and will challenge each other and will, in a respectful way, will challenge each other, will will try new things, will have the courage to innovate, the courage to create, if if they feel psychologically safe with each other. Yes. And you see companies that are basically building, that you see very, like uh, Google has built a model based on what we're talking about, and they're a very innovative company. Pixar Animated Studios model is based on this type of model, and they're a very creative company. And Bridgewater Associates, the biggest hedge fund in the world, has a similar type model. And uh, what's fascinating, you even look at the United States Navy SEALs, they have a similar type cultural model. Hmm. Four very different types of businesses, or or three businesses and one uh, governmental, military, special ops. What's fascinating is, is this, under what conditions does the human being feel safe enough to try, to dare, to create, to innovate? And how do you create that environment where you, Bert, feel safe with me? And when I ask you questions about why do you believe that, what data do you have, what, what's, what's the source, how credible is that source, instead of becoming, anyone would do this, not just you, right. naturally, emotionally defensive when they're challenged you would know that I'm doing that to help you and help us get to the most accurate answer. 
It's not who is right. It's what is what's the most the best answer. And when you see people working in these types of environments, what you see is such high level of of uh, human thinking. And you know, and it, it all it's not thinking; it's listening. Mm. And that's where this whole thing about humility and a quiet ego comes into. You know, you you basically if you if you define yourself by how much you know and what you know, you're by definition are going to be defensive. And if you think about how we all were educated, okay, we came up in schools, and you know you can remember Bert the first time you you know you believed you were smart. It probably had something to do with schools where you made the highest score or a good score on a test. So how do you make a good score on a test in our schools today? You get the high, high, good grades, which yeah. means you make the fewest mistakes. Right. Well, in the world that we're going into, where basically a world that's very volatile, constantly changing, corporations, businesses, small businesses, everyone, no matter what, what, what you do for a living, you're going to have to be a lifelong learner, learner mm. which means you're going to try new things, which means you're going to learn from mistakes. Iterative learning. Lifelong learning is iterative learning. You can't be afraid of mistakes. You can't be afraid afraid whether, uh, and you, you can't be fearful. And this whole thing of the two biggest inhibitors to learning is ego and fear. Mm-hmm. And these corporations and entities I've studied, all are designed to mitigate ego and fear, and you mitigate ego with humility. Wow. You know, it's so interesting that what's been talked about, you know, in the spiritual realm for so long, humility. you got to have humility. There are many organizations, 12-step groups, that talk about humility and how much in a way, you know, by giving up, you know, your sense of need to have power as an individual, in a way you become more powerful. You let that go. And we're talking about this in a very, very practical sense. And it, uh, you know, there was a quote attributed, I don't know if it's true, to Harry Truman who said, it's amazing how much you can get done if you don't care who gets the credit. Everybody can add. Everybody can add. You don't, you know, every, but every human being, and again, we're trying to talk about humans here and keep the human involved in the, in the economy and in the world, you can all add something a little bit different. You know, one is a specialist yeah. in this thing, one has brilliant ideas in the other way, and somehow to work together. So is that happening more in, in other countries, like in, in I mean, Scandinavia and other European countries? There, there's, there's more of this collaborative uh, system than there is currently here in the U.S.? Well, as, as, you, would, as you would imagine, and Bert, uh, in many cases, there's always exceptions. There's no you know, hard oh, to I generalize, sure. but I'll, I'll yeah. do it. Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's a lot is their, their, their view of, uh, uh, their, their view is somewhat different than ours with their safety net and, uh, and with their, their, their system. They've, we have the most laissez-faire capitalist system uh, of any of the major major countries. This survival of the fittest, um, and so you and we, you know, we we don't have uh, health care for everybody. We don't have right. many of the Scandinavian, like the Scandinavian countries, free education for everybody. Um, we we have uh, a very, at this point in time, bifurcated system of the of the. The top ten percent, and uh, and there's very little middle class, and then you know, uh, the, if, if you will, the, sure. the lower income levels, uh-huh. and um, so you you don't see this, you don't see the huge disparity in the in, in many of the other 
other countries because the ratio of CEO pay to employee pay is not as high as ours. So if you go back to the era of the great prosperity during those 30 yeah. years that you mentioned, the ratio of CEO pay to employee pay ranged from 20 to 1 to 30 to 1. Mm. Okay. <laughs> and, 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 you know, in, in, in modern times, it's been as, you know, been as high as in the 300s, and it's in the 200s and something now to one. And so the, the, whole, the whole change that happened in our country beginning in the 1980s where a, a man-made rule was created that the sole purpose of corporations is to create shareholder value yes. was contrary to what the big corporations publicly stated in the era of great prosperity. They publicly stated, we serve society, we serve our workers, and we serve our shareholders. And in the, we began in the 1980s changing that definition, and that definition has overtaken our definition, our form of, of capitalism, and has is, is led to uh, uh, you know, the, the challenges that we currently have with income inequality and social immobility. And you know, it's, it's, the land of, it's the land of opportunity. Uh, was how I grew up and how you grew up. Yeah. So you worked hard and you played by the rules. You had a good chance of having a better life than your parents did. And today's, in our situation today, if you're born into poverty, the chance of you escaping poverty during your life is small. And back then, we had a large and really secure, relatively secure middle class, a very large middle class. There was, yes. And I think a key word there is is security that people you know if they feel threatened as they do now you know they're just barely making it barely able to yes. pay the rent yes. then yes. it it you know what does that do to a person and and how does that affect the whole economy yes and it goes back it goes back to um franklin roosevelt's uh, yes um, speech about security and really goes back to franklin roosevelt's uh, putting forth didn't didn't go far. Putting forth his second bill of rights, yes. uh, that uh, that uh, that people you you people have to feel secure in order not to feel fearful, and um, and uh, and that's you know that has something to do with your jobs and how much you're earning and your uh, health and your retirement and old age, and I mean it's it's and we are just uh, having conversations in the, the country today, you know, talking about you know dramatically reducing health care for our, our most uh, uh, vulnerable people. And, I mean, that's, that, that's just, that's more mind-boggling than the technology tsunami. <laughs> You're right. That really is. I mean, just, in, I mean, okay, it's, it's terribly cold and heartless, but just in terms of economically, it's incredibly stupid. <laughs> you know, it just, it, and it, it's interesting to me how much it comes back to, to Franklin Roosevelt and the standard he set, and then, and then, as you say, well, in 1980 we got something completely new, Ronald Reagan, and I think he was very, very historic as well. You know, just kind of rejecting the notion of the common good. And FDR in 1936 was quite clear in his intent. Now he didn't accomplish this all the way, but he, his intent was to make the capitalist system be subservient to the common good, and uh, that it, we are just anything but that now. I, I, what, what, what about that old notion of the common good? I mean, and, and you say that many of our 
cultural values from our earliest history may provide us with the key to adapting. For the good of us all, we need to actively and systematically resurrect a culture of we in order to yeah. weather the technology, technology yeah. tsunami. We are a long way off from that. Have, have we are we, a long way off. Yes, have, have we, we are. Have we not now devolved into an aristocratic feudal system concerned only with the good of the 1% or even less than that in the ruling few corporations? And how the heck do we address that? I mean, we're so far from that. We, you know, the cultural values from our earliest history. Uh, you got any ideas, suggestions, how we can make this happen? It's, it's going to be challenging, and it's going to take leadership. It's going to take uh, a lot of people uh, expressing their views at, uh, by voting. It's going to take uh, uh, the business community to realize that what we have is not going to be sustainable uh, and therefore to step up to the plate. Uh, I believe it's going to be... I believe the pub. I believe it's got to start in the communities and come up. I'm and it's got yes. to basically be broadened together. Uh, you know, parents are going to have to, uh, you know, say what what's what's going on with the school system. Yeah. I I don't I I think that if you look at the history of our country, whether it was you go back to the let's just say the the the, the resets that we had. We had the Gilded Age and yes. and uh, President Teddy Roosevelt basically reset the Gilded Age with the antitrust laws, etc. Yes. Uh, and then we had the Great Great Depression, um, which basically you had the New New Deal reset. Yes. Uh, and both both times, okay, we had suffering. We had uh, we had very difficult conditions for our people, and we historically have not been a very proactive uh, responder. Uh, we've been a reactive responder. That's for sure. and, and that's scary this time because the situation is going to be so dire and the country is um, much more diverse and is very, you know, very divisive currently. And it, it's going to take leadership. It's going to take, it's going to take uh, men and women, and, you know, and, 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 I, and I stress women because when you go back and look at the history, women have been leaders in, in all of the movements. It's going to take men and women uh, to stand up and say, "Who do we want to be? Who have we become? Is this who we are? Is this who we? Is this what we stand for? Are we the best we can be as a country? We need to. We need to right this ship. We need to." Um, and I think it's. I think it's going to have to come from the public. I. I, I don't believe that the the power structure in the country is going to voluntarily give up their power. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah, the very power very rarely yields its power without some sort mm -hmm. of a struggle. And I I do remember I believe I'm not positive I believe it was Obama who who said something oh a number of years ago about that uh, you know rich people didn't get there all by themselves and he was people made fool foolishness of him they made fun of him being saying. Because people want to believe people do it by themselves. Well, nobody, nobody does it by themselves. Right, right. Nobody does it by themselves. I mean, if you if you came up with money, someone it's, it was someone else's money, but someone helped them. I mean, if you look at if you look at many many people that have that have made that are billionaires today, right. they didn't they they go back and you see, and some of them are humble. Uh, and the oh, humble yes. ones will tell you it was school teachers. Yes. It was my parents. 
It was someone along the way that gave me a break. It was someone that took a chance on me. You know, I didn't have the the, the prestigious college or, or university. Someone took a chance on me. It was someone in my career that, you know, I made a mistake. And instead of basically, you know, firing me, they helped me develop. I mean, all of us, uh, you know, no nobody makes it through the journey of life and succeeds. I don't believe by themselves, and that's a broad statement. But I happen yeah, to believe true. that. Yeah, I think it's. And, a, yeah, there's a lot and, of evidence. And, of and, and and you know, I mean, if you think about even some of the greatest academic scholars, okay, sure. I mean, you you, you take the Nobel Prize winners, and you see basically how they basically created their ideas, and their ideas evolved. They were iterative, and many of them, probably one of the brightest academics we've had in this country, Herbert Simon. Uh, he, generally speaking, had two other associates, working colleagues, working him on every major thing he did, whether it was forming a business school or artificial intelligence or whatever. You know, if you look at um, Daniel Kahneman, who wins the Nobel Prize, uh, how did he come up with all his ideas? By taking walks with his partner, Tversky, and they talked things out. Wow. Because most, you know, if you look at Darwin's ideas and you look at Einstein's, you yep. know, people are iterating Edison. back and forth across sure. with other people's ideas. Right. Now, this this thing about the big me, we've gone we've gone overbalanced with our narcissistic big me, and I made it, and you didn't make it because I'm better than you and you were <laughs> lazy and whatever. No, and we've we've got to the big me has got to become the big we in this country, for us to be to really realize what this country could become. And I think about so many different, you know, technological advances, the airplane, the automobile. Okay, everybody knows the Wright brothers, but, you know, a whole bunch of people worked on an airplane before they got it, had it not been for all those other people, you know. It, it is collaborative. It's absolutely collaborative. You know, the, the first to get there, you know, this, this race, uh, you know, it's yeah. it's the process of getting there that that, that moves. And see, I forward. think I think part of it also is is that our our education system yes. was was designed to produce mass work, mass number of yes. workers yes. who go work in factories in yes. mass numbers and don't make mistakes. Absolutely. And that work is going to be done by technology now. And I think that as 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 we talk about in the book, I I think we need a new definition of smart. Yes. And, you know, instead of defining yourself by how much you know or what you know, how about define yourself by the quality of your thinking, listening, and collaborating? Wow. It's a, turn it into a quality decision. And, and make yourself a little more humble by understanding that your mental models of the world, your story of how the world works, is only your story. <laughs> it's not real, just like my story is not real. And so... so it, understand that our views are just are shaped by our experiences and our experiences are not the total reality. Don't identify with your ideas. I'm not talking about values. You know, just don't identify them because that, that releases your ego's not invested in that thing being right. Then you can test your thinking. Then you can be open-minded. I mean, think about it. How can you be a good critical thinker if you can't be open-minded? How can you be open-minded if you've got a big ego? I mean, it, it, it's pretty. It's pretty simple to see whether you got to have a quiet ego, you got to have humility, in order to be open-minded, 
in order to be a good critical thinker. You've got to have humility in order to have empathy with other people in order to emotionally engage. Well, those are the things that basically are going to be needed in the new economy that's coming. Humility is not going to really be a choice. And, and we're going to have to get over this aspect that you know, people walk around with the dictionary definition of humility, meekness, submissiveness, huh. thinking lowly of oneself. No, there's a psychological definition of, of humility, which is having an accurate view of yourself, your strengths and weaknesses, being able to acknowledge your mistakes and what you don't know, being open to new ideas, contradictory information, in fact, seeking out information that disagrees with you, keeping your accomplishments in perspective, like we were talking about, Bert, yeah. having a low focus on the self. And and this and it's amazing. It's, it's, uh, Herb, Herb, Herbert Simon had a, a quote, uh, the Nobel laureate that I mentioned before had a quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it. Isn't it amazing how intelligent the people seem to be, people are who agree with us? <laughs> well, I, I, I can tell you, as I got advice as a politician running for office, when you listen to somebody and, you know, just at least act like you agree with them, they, they're going to think you're the smartest person in the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, but yeah. we do have to redefine, I think, what's smart and, and you know, understand humility. The, if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And we're talking about a very important part of Keeping Democracy Alive. The book is Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. And we keep coming back to our education system. You know, they, they, they're cutting back and cutting back. And the education in this system these days seems to have moved uh, been moved by current values away from the tradition of encouraging critical thinking and curiosity. You know, the, the uh, adult ed now is just job preparation. You know, what? how can it help you get a job? You don't want to, I mean, teaching about history? Come on, you know, what is that going to get you? In what ways is our education system insufficient to the tasks ahead? And as an educator yourself, do you see positive movement happening uh, despite this uh, base from which we come, where you know the education system just ain't cutting it, there there are public school systems in the country that are transforming themselves more into project-based learning, students learning in small teams, students having choice on what they work on, and by choosing problems and, and solving problems or creating stuff, making stuff, the maker movement, or even trying to do little entrepreneurial things, they have to learn, if you will, the history or the biology because it's necessary in order to, to work on their problem. So there are school systems that are, that are, that are uh, moving in that direction, but they're in the minority, all right? They're in the minority. Yeah. The, vast, the vast school systems are still at the point in time where... Uh, we're all into to test and, and test are oh, yes. having the right answer. Oh, yes. And, um, That's and horrible. The, the people are not being taught, if you will, critical thinking. People are not being taught how to be innovative, how to make things, how to, you know, design thinking type of uh, ways of approaching life. And iterative learning is the number one job skill that people are going to be able to, to know. And if you think about it, think about, you know, if you, if you, you know, remember either your children or, or, or if you know of 
children or grandchildren or whatever, think about a child four years old. A child four years old, what do they do? They ask why a lot. Yeah. They are fearless. They'll go try things, okay? And they'll fall down, and they'll pick themselves up, and they'll go right back at it. Yes. So children are curious, fearless, and resilient. In the school system, the way it's designed today, schools that out of people. And those are the attributes that you're going to need in order to basically um, be a good hunter-gatherer. And I'm going back mm-hmm. to our answer, a good hunter-gatherer right. in the world that we're going into where even those people at work, many of those people are not going to have full-time jobs. They're going to be going from job to job. Um, and so, you know, the, this whole concept, what do, what do my children need? Children need to learn and adults need to learn. How do I go into new unknown situations and have a process of figuring out what I, what's going on, what I need to know, and how to learn it? And so you can basically go real simply and say everybody in school should learn the scientific method. Everybody in school should get into the maker movement and how to make things. Um, those are th- some of the things that we need uh, to work on with uh, all the way through the system. Um, you have, you have, you're seeing some experimentation in universities, but to, we're, we're talking about a small percentage right. of schools at every level are, are really focusing on preparing people to be able to think, and then let's not leave the most important part, the emotional social development. Emotional intelligence is going to be as or more important in the world we're going into for people as IQ because huge part of you know what, what, what makes us uniquely human, the hardest thing ultimately is for people or technology to replicate is that human connection, that emotional connection, that trust, that feeling that someone cares about you and that is, you know, going to basically help you as a home care worker or as a psychologist or a physical therapist or a teacher. Um, and that's, you know, going to be able to relate to you and understand your emotions and why this is important to you. That's going to be the, the hardest thing ultimately for technology to do. Yeah. If you think about it, did you ever take a course in, you know, in, in college or high school about emotional intelligence? Mm-hmm. I was never had a chance to take one. <laughs> of course not. I laugh because, yeah, it would be useful, but, but not in the least. And, you know, aside from sounding nice and this being, you know, nice, being nice to other people is nice to do. It, it matters. It, this is real stuff here we're talking about here. This actually matters in terms of uh, being a better economy, uh, you know, having more yeah. security, people uh, getting along with one another. It yeah. really does matter. It's not just... Yes, it is. It is, it is. it is mission critical. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about a cultural transformation, and that's why when we began the conversation, I called this challenge existential. Okay. Yes. We do this. This. This um, um, technology is going to force us as society to make some very hard choices, and and the decisions we make are going to impact. All right. The uh, the course of humanity. This is this big. I'm not. This is this is big. Yep. It really is, and uh, you know, it reminds me of some of the stuff. From the 60s, you know, the the, uh, the optimism, the exuberance, you know, this is the dawning of the age of Aquarius. I mean, it sounds so trite and silly, but the possible 
the possible with technology, if it can be harnessed, you know, and, and used by humans rather than have it harness us, you know, and just treat us like, uh, you know, automatons ourselves. Boy, it really can make a big difference. Yeah. And there's things I that mean, can, it, go ahead. It, if, did you see the movie Elysium? I have not. Uh, Elysium's movie came out a few, few years ago, and it, it's a story about uh, the automated world with the people who control the automated world living, um, I'll, I'll say offshore, but it's off space, uh-huh. uh, living off space in a new, uh, wow. um, <laughs> like, space community uh-huh. uh, that's really, you know, quite nice with greenery and all this stuff. Uh-huh. And they're looking down on the uh, the planet at uh, the people who are struggling and uh, wearing um, uh, animal fur and uh-huh. uh, with dust and dirt. And it's, you know, the, the proverbial 99.9% versus <laughs> the, the 0.1%. Right. And it's it's the story about, and it's, it's you know, science fiction, but it's a story about uh, that says, you know, the, 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 the choice of what we're going to be and... and uh, you know, in Elysium is, and and the the story turns out that you know that uh, the the hero uh, down on Earth figures out that there's a way to they can get to the spaceship. They can basically re jimmy the code, and then they can create a fairer society. Nice. And, but it's a but it's it's a it's a it's a movie that 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 is yes, it's far fetched. Right. But is it Totally science fiction? Right. It may have some let well. I mean, who would have thunk 1984, you know? I mean, <laughs> there it is there. If you yeah. just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We're talking with uh, uh, Edward Hess, author of the new book, Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the Smart Machine Age. Healthcare. You know, the discussion goes on in Washington. How cruel, I mean, they're being... It seems to me just ridiculous just to keep Trump's promise. How crucial is health care for the common good uh, to a sustainable future for humans? Well, it's mission critical. It's mission critical. Um, it's mission critical. We, and, uh, yeah, it can't just be for uh, those who would afford it, you know. That's right. It's mission critical. Yeah. I mean, you, the other, otherwise, you're going to have people who cannot afford it dying much earlier. Uh, and, you know, what, uh, what kind of society is that? It basically says, look, if you, you know, survival of the fittest, if you can't afford health care, you know, you just you die. pay the price. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that's a sad state, uh, and it's more than sad. And uh, I think that, I, and I think there's a large, we've got to have a conversation in this country that crosses over if you will, religion that crosses over. It goes back to fundamental values because if you look at all the major religions, the underlying values mm. are pretty similar. Yeah. We've got to go back to the basis on, in, of some of the, you know, the history and study history and what's happened in these situations. And there's got to be leaders from all walks of life having these conversations and in, 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 uh broadly and and because once we've got to keep our eye on the right eight ball and and we've got to focus on what type of you know the basics of life all right we're back to maslow type of talk Mm -hmm. abraham Mm -hmm. maslow sure the hierarchy of needs yes 
and 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 you and I and others and people different than me and people different than you have got to have the conversation, and we can't get caught up in the emotionalism of the of the creative divisiveness which takes hmm. our eye off the eight ball. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. We, we've done it before. We have chosen the common good over individual yeah. greed before. Yeah. I wonder if it's possible that the incredible extreme of Trumpism may help the swing of the pendulum back toward the common good. What, what are your thoughts on that? It's possible. It, it remains to be seen. It remains to be seen. <laughs> uh, as to, well, we've got to um, speak up. Yep, but, but it remains to be seen, and I mean, there's, you know, if you think about uh, the first uh, six months of the presidency and, and what's happened and the, the, the dailiness of it, it, it remains, to, you know, we're, we're in a very unpredictable, unchartered waters. And, uh, you know, I, re- I remember the, the, the days, and you know, back in the Watergate days, and uh, mm-hmm. the, the Saturday night firing. Oh yes, you, you, we don't know what's going to happen here. And, and, and well, the, I'm, the, I'm thinking that the, that this this near worship of selfishness. I mean, the people somehow it amazes me that people think if somebody is exceedingly rich, they're better. You know, somehow there's something just by the fact that they're very rich that they are better people. I wonder about the idea of, of different forms of public ownership of those things which have morphed into real public utilities. The, everything's that need to survive. And some of that happened under FDR. You know, I wonder if making things publicly owned and publicly controlled, even municipally owned and controlled, I wonder if this might be a partial answer to job elimination and displacement. And as Bill Gates has suggested, as you pointed out, taxing the robots. Yes, taxing the robots. So, there have been uh, there have been some proposals put forth uh, by some leading economists uh, who have stated that that and it's not you know that it's it's an idea so it's not uh, definitive into the fact that right. for example the amount of wealth that's going to be appropriated by the artificial intelligence platforms that are going to be built and you know there's not going to be twenty platforms there may be two there may be three but should the public the public own uh, I don't know what no one's put out a percentage I'm just throwing something out sure. should the should the public own 20% of that platform and that 20% is used right. to fund the human needs um, the social safety net um, whether it's universal basic income whether it's health care whether it's education uh, and you know I'm not saying 20% is the right number right, it's just, uh, yeah. but 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 the, but should the public should the public in um, and to to bind together, you know, give 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 the innovators and the creators and keep them motivated, but to basically have them understand they're you know people all over the world want to move to the United States and become entrepreneurs and innovators because of what our country stands for and our laws and our protections. Yeah. Well, you you're you're creating that product in this country, and so therefore the country should own part, you know, yes. of something going forward and. and and that's something that should be uh, debated. And there'll be people out there that hear that, and they're going to they're cry communism, yeah, right. socialism. Right. And, but the, the answer is no. It is basically quid pro quo because you have received certain benefits. Uh-huh. 
from the people, from the, our history, by because of our legal system, et cetera, et cetera. And, and therefore, there's a cost of doing business. It's just another cost of doing business. Wow, that's a good, uh, rather clear way to put that. That's very interesting. And I brought up, you know, the, the late 60s, very optimistic, highly exuberant, looking at a future of great automation and possibly greatly expanded leisure time. I remember Abby Hoffman calling for full unemployment in a new world. <laughs> that vision, imagine the possibility of people being free from drudgery and more free to tap into our own innate creativity. In the face of shocking extreme between the top one-tenth of one percent and the rest of us, there's more discussion now about the idea of universal basic income. I'm curious if that's anything like what you see possible. Do you, do you favor any particular model of basic universal income? I, I can't help but think that if this, you know, all these jobs are going to be destroyed, maybe this can open up creativity that's been crushed. You, it, it, there, there's a couple, couple of things you're, you're raising there, Bert. Yes, yes, it may. But when, when, the, when, the, when the jobs are crushed, it raises the question, how do human beings find dignity and meaning and purpose? Yes, yes. And those are very uh, uh, high-level uh, goals. And when you have so many of your population that's basically living paycheck to paycheck and, you know, don't have reserves to cover any type of, right. uh, you know, a bad situation, and they're likely going to be the group that's the first, if you will, to be automated. Yes. How do we have a conversation about meaning of life, purpose, and dignity? How are they going to feel good about themselves? And that, that's a big leap to, and I'm that's not disagreeing right. with you, I'm now trying to connect the dots. Okay? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a big leap to, if you will, creativity. We've got to figure out how to help them find, find out uh, what their passion is. I can remember couple of years ago, a leading artificial intelligence uh, guru says, it's going to be such the greatest time in the world. All the people losing their jobs are going to be able to uh, find their passion. And I says, most people are working two, three jobs and trying to make ends meet and trying to create a better life for their family. They don't even know what their passion is, and they don't even know what passion is other than doing everything they can for their family. Yes. Says, you know, it's like, wait a minute, we're talking about all of the, you know, this whole thing about your, our, our, our maleness is defined by our job and being successful and yes. you're strong and all this. All this stuff goes out the window when we're, we have to redefine what does it mean to be a, you know, a good person, to be a good member of society. Uh, and, and I keep going back to um, my thinking to the hunter-gatherer days and to our ancestors as to how they organized and how they worked in teams, yes. their leadership model, and even the Native Americans' oh, leadership model, yep. the sitting in circles, and the role that women played. I, I think we may have to go back to our ancestors who lived in simpler times uh, to find some of the, uh, some of the rules. Now, let, me, let me go to your question. Is, is there a model about universal basic income? I'm not sure the model has, you know, there's there's models out there that are being experimented with, right. and the, the number's different. That you know, and universal means every person gets um, so much uh, money. And I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know. I you know, I think that it, it may end up being a different 
I don't know what model. There's something inside of me which just says no matter what your situation, you can be a billionaire or you can be really, really have bad health care problems, bad this, bad that. You're going to get the same amount. Something inside of me says that doesn't make sense. Okay. And so I'm the the universal part uh, yeah. can, can, has me a little stymied now as to how we, you know, hmm. I'm I'm well. I don't think we want to be in a situation in, in this country where we basically, if you're if you're a United States citizen, and it, it, the same would apply to the global world, but right now we're just talking about him. Yeah. That that we, we would be part of a society that we basically say, uh, you know. Um, we're just going to write you off, uh, just go off over there and die. I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be part of that country. Well, I think what you're talking about here is consistent with a new definition of new smart. You're curious. You don't know. And we're able to say that and work together and listen to other people. What a concept. I, 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 one reviewer of this book asks, who knew that the secret to survival in this intimidating new world of machine intelligence was for us to become more human? Another reviewer points out, we can choose fear and ego and retreat into ourselves in the face of these challenges, or we can embrace collaboration and positivity instead. Hess and Ludwig show us how to make the life-affirming choice. The book is called Humility is the New Smart, Rethinking Human Excellence in the smart machine age. And I get some sense of optimism here. I, I kind of like that. Thank you, Edward Hess, uh, for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Very interesting uh, discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. It's a break.